One of the greatest fears of a mother is that everybody's going on with life and you just hope that your daughter will not be forgotten. It's burned right into your soul and in, into your heart and your mind. I'm journalist Angela Kennecke. I lost my oldest child, Emily, to fentanyl poisoning in 2018. Emily was just 21. Her death was preceded by years of struggle, the struggle of addiction so many families face today. We were just three days away from holding an intervention when she died. We couldn't save her. There's a term called amelioration of grief, and it means that grief takes time, and it will get better only if you put work into it. In this podcast, I'm grieving out loud with other parents who've lost children and with those currently struggling with the monster of addiction. I didn't want to go into withdrawal. It was like one of the biggest fears of my life at the time. You were terrified of withdrawal? Terrified. Why? It is the worst pain, um, illness, the worst feeling that I could ever imagine having. I'm also learning from experts in the field on how we can and must do better to treat this disease of the brain. We treat the addiction and the effect of the addiction, but we're not looking at the pain. The root. The root cause. Today I am joined by author Pat Shevland. Pat wrote a book called How Do I Survive? Seven Steps to Living After Child Loss. Pat, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you, Angela. I'm very honored to be here. Tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book. You didn't actually lose a child yourself. Correct. People assume that I lost the child myself, but what happened is my parents, I had a brother that was born and died before I was born, and so I was born into a grieving family, but they didn't really express it. This was, you know, 68 years ago, and they didn't express their grief. They didn't talk about it. And it took several years before I even realized that I had this brother, in addition to all my other brothers. And when my brother would have turned 60, I had some epiphanies in life about my relationship with him, even though we were six years apart and I never knew him. But it also was a time that my mom allowed to open up the grief that had been buried within her for 60 years. So we did a lot of work together to try to help her um, give her grief air, give it air so that she could actually start the healing process, which she hadn't been able to do for 60 years. Don't you think that's also part of that generation, your mother's generation? I have a friend whose aunt was died and at 21 and her family never talked about it. They buried her, and the dads will never talk about this again. And I think that that was very typical of maybe the previous generations, just to want to you move on, you don't talk about it, you bury your grief. Absolutely, absolutely. That was a big part of it. And there was a lot of layering of grief in my family at the time because there had been four deaths all within a matter of like a couple of months that were all immediate family members to my dad's side of the family. And so once we started talking, we realized that there was a reason why they really couldn't talk about it. There was Everybody was so engulfed in this layered grief that it was very, very difficult. And my mom felt, frankly, very abandoned at that time, which really shut her down then. 
I think it's easy for parents who are grieving to feel abandoned anyway, even though maybe now we talk more about grief these days. It, things change. People around you shift and change. Not everybody wants to be around somebody who's grieving. When you wrote the book, who were you targeting? Um, people like yourself, honestly. Um, I had... I was a corporate executive and in the corporate field for 25 years. I'm a nurse by background, a registered nurse, which is where I started, you know, really holding the space um, and helping with grieving families. Spent a lot of time in my own family holding the hands of loved ones um, who had died and during their transition. But when I opened my coaching business, I wanted to become a life coach since the late 1990s before it was really a thing. And I decided I'm going to do this. This is something I really want to do because I love working with people and helping people. And I wanted to get out of the corporate gig and get into my next chapter of life, so to speak. And when I opened up my coaching business, you have to open a coaching business in order to get the hours to get certified. And it just so happened that the first two clients were grieving moms. One was where her child had died. He was 14, and he had um, died in a AV a accident, um, like a three-wheeler, something like that, about five years prior. So she was just going through some real differences, changes in her life and trying to figure out her next step. But it was interesting. The other person came to me because she was grieving the death of her father. But once we started talking... It op she opened up about how her daughter was seven and had died by an accident 30 years prior. So it was like all of a sudden life was just presenting me with grieving moms. And I knew, I just knew that this was, this was my role in life now. I needed to really help moms and families kind of maneuver through this in the best way and hold the space in total love to help them find lives that are filled with some peace and purpose after such tragedy. Right. It is hard to find your purpose. Life can seem meaningless after such a great loss. You say seven steps in the title of your book. So I'm really curious about that because the one thing I found after I lost Emily was that I immediately, the, the amount of pain and anguish is so overwhelming. And you're just looking for someone to tell you like, this is how you make it better. Or you do this thing, or you do that thing. And I'm like a researcher, you know, so I'm reading and looking at, at some point I realized there was no quick fix. There was no easy thing that I had to learn to live with this pain. And over time, and it's only been a couple of years, but over time, um, the pain is not as intense, but it's always there. And it comes back in intensity sometimes, but I mean, it's not at that level, like where you feel like you can't possibly, how could you even function in life, right? If the pain remained at this intense, intense level at all hours of the day and night. Uh, but there is really no quick fix for grief, is there? I mean, I love the idea of seven steps, so I want to know what that is. But uh, and I and I did take a look at your book, and I think we have a lot to talk about. But 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 tell me why you came up with that idea of seven steps. Um, and so let me first talk about um, when I in grief, and you are an expert, unfortunately, of this. But what happens when that trauma initially is there? I I'm going to speak in nursey terms because I'm a nurse and medical background. But it's like being in a horrific accident, and your body is totally mangled. 
And what happens? A lot of times you may be put into an induced coma for a while, right? If you have, you know, brain injuries and swelling and all of that type of thing. And so your body is just kind of being insulated through this medical coma. It feels like grief and that initial stages of grief is just like that for your psychological body is to just kind of put you in that coma phase. And that takes a while. So I don't even recommend when people come to me and it's just really fresh, you know, their grief is just the, the death has just occurred and, and it's very, they're in, they need to have that time to just be insulated in their grief, be surrounded by their friends and family and just kind of be in that fog, that fog of grief. But then over time, as you probably know, then you start wanting to, okay, I need to figure out what are some things that I can do. And that's where the seven steps came in. It's not a quick and easy fix for sure. Yeah. I want to just touch on what you just said there about the early stages, because I was very fortunate. I had a short-term disability policy. So I was able to take three months off of work. Um, work was checking with me, going back, you know, that kind of thing, but they were understanding. And I don't think I could have functioned and I was surrounded like by my family and my best friend came from out of town and stayed with me a couple different times. And, and I had that, I had that sort of insulation period. I know a lot of moms who went back to work after like a week or two weeks or even dads. And, and I just feel like, I don't think I, I think I would have just crashed and burned out at another time then. I, and so I think that's a society wants you to, okay, we've given you, you've taken your three bereavement days or something, or we've given you, um, you know, two weeks or whatever it is now, now get back to work. And, and I think that that's unrealistic expectation because I do liken um, losing a child or having that incredible kind of trauma to a brain injury. I mean, I really, and I really think I was in shock for the first year, quite frankly. Um, but so how do we, how do we get people to understand that, that a grief, someone who's lost somebody very significant in their lives, it doesn't necessarily have to be a child, but that you need that time. I mean, we don't allow that in our society. We don't. Uh, well, this is a quick fix society, as you know, in all the work that you've done and, and everything that you've experienced. We are, yeah, let's take a pill. Let's do this. We want it over with. And we don't do grief well here in the United States. Um, I'm going to be very frank about that. You know, even, but even if we get into cultures within the United States, when my nephew died, when Coleman died, um, it was a Native American culture, and we took the time where there was this four days of this wake and then a wiping of the tears ceremony. And, and so it wasn't like that you're going to stop grieving, but it really allowed 24-7, we were there, and we were in the teepee. We were with, you know, his body. We were with the family, and we spent so much. I mean, it was total immersion and spending that time to help in a little bit of that grieving process. But, you know, think back into what, like the 1800s or whatever, when people would wear the morning black, and they might do it for a year. Um, I was just talking to Marianne Williamson, I don't know who she, if you know who she is, but she was I do, I do know who Marianne yeah, is. Yeah, <laughs> so I was on a call with her the other day. And, you know, she was talking about in the Jewish Talmud or whatever the book is um, that she was talking about is that they allowed, there were rules and you could actually get up from the dinner table if you were grieving without having to be excused or wait till the end of dinner because they honored that grieving process and allowed it to go on. But we, 
you know, it is kind of a quick fix thing here. And so what I tell families that are coming to me and moms that are coming to me, especially if they're coming to me and it's only been, you know, three months, six months, eight months, you know, depending on where they're at, I will tell them, you know, I think that you need to just have some time here. And the biggest thing is you need to be kind to yourself. There is no timetable. There is no cookie cutter process for grief. You are you and alone and you're doing your own grief journey, even your family members are going to have a different pattern, a different way of, of moving through. And, and it's not moving over it. It's not getting over it. It's moving through the, the various times. And this is a lifelong thing. You know, I have a friend who her son was 21 or one and only child. She was a single parent. He died 11 years ago. And I have to tell you, the 10th year has been really, really difficult. She's, she's, She's working through it, but all of a sudden that just kind of showed up for her where she's been doing pretty darn good, you know, but those times happen. Well, we could certainly, we could certainly learn from other cultures. I, I had the privilege of, of having a wiping of the tears ceremony performed for me by a South Dakota tribe. And I wrote a blog about it. It's on the website here, but uh, I, it was the most incredible healing thing and I just think we could really take our cues from from other cultures on on how to better help people grieve and uh, feel the support and love um, instead of trying to act like it didn't happen or like you're just going to move on. But but let's let's move let's let's talk about some of the content of the book because I want to make sure we get to that. Uh, okay. Seven steps. Uh, what what are the seven steps? Okay, so the seven steps just so happen that um, I use uh, the acronym Breathe. Because what's the first thing when we go deep into grief? We forget how to breathe. We bring that <gasps> and the yeah. air gets caught in our chest and when we're sobbing. And so it's so difficult. And so we have to learn how to breathe to inhale and exhale. That's so important emotionally and physically throughout this. So that's what I use. So that, yeah, there are seven steps. So the first one is just really understanding who you are today when you're starting to kind of step into okay I'm, I'm looking into the future a little bit but who are you today because when we have a tragic loss when you ha when your daughter died everything changed your changes you your values probably changed things that were important to you before are not the things that are important and vice versa right, um, right. all of those things change so it's really understanding so I use um, different tools that are some some are tests that we use some are just evaluating where you're at in various areas of your life and I also um, use a, a program called human design to kind of see who are you when you came into this world based upon your birth date and your um, where you were born and that type of thing, because it gives a really good idea of, of what are your strengths and who you really are at the very core of your personality level, so that we can use all of those things to help as, you know, that my clients are walking through this journey to help them. So if they want to do something, we can pull on their strengths, or maybe sometimes their strengths may end up getting into their away. It could be Achilles heel. And so we work with that and this understanding, just have a baseline of where you're at. So that's the first thing that we do. So being clear on who you are today, that's the B in um, breathe. Then the next step is reimagining your life. And um, this is really... That's hard to do. 
Because I think the hopelessness that comes along with grief and the feeling like there is no real future, like it's been robbed you, even though, I mean, I always bring gratitude into it, but even though you may have other kids or, or a spouse or a career or whatever, it, it does feel hopeless sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes all that may be is I just want to find peace. I've had clients. Um, I had a couple that I just worked with recently and I had both of them together as I was coaching with them. And they both came up after this exercise because I do a guided imagery meditation to help kind of envision what, what we're looking for. And both of them just came up with a simple thing. I just want peace. I just want to feel some peace. So it may not be a big visionary thing. It can be as simple as I just want to find ways to find peace in my heart or find a little contentment because I don't feel that way. So that's what this is, is just what is it you may want to see in yourself in six months or a year from now? And how do you look? How do you feel? Um, what would What's that that dream state? And that can be hard because you may not feel that. And that's why I think early on, it's very difficult to say that. You know, it's give it a year, give it two years. You know, a lot of the people I work with, it's not something that we start working together within, you know, three months to six months. It's they, they've been walking this journey for a while. So that, so that's what that is. And and it's using a guided imagery meditation um, that I have that I share. And when they get the book, then they can actually reach out to me and I give them a recording. So that's, um, the reimagining your life is the R and breathe. And then it's engaging your tribe. And this is the one that I feel is probably one of the most critical is a lot of times we lean on our family members, right? But our family members are grieving deeply too. And so there's that you need to have a couple of people that can be a little bit removed from that, that are solely your tailor-made support team. And so it might, I encourage people to choose one or two people and actually have conversations with them, asking them to be part of that tribe that, you know, when you're calling in the middle of the night because you can't sleep, they're willing to answer the phone and talk you off the cliff, you know, that they're willing. It can be hard to find those people. It can be hard to find. I mean, I'm lucky I have a couple of really close friends that I know I can lean on. I don't know if I call them in the middle of the night, but maybe I could have early on. Yeah. (laughs) But I, you also like friends shift and change. I hear that from everybody who loses a child that that their friendships change too. So some people that they thought they could count on, they couldn't. Right. And that'll shift. Again, that shifts over time. But in this initial um, program that I talk about, find, find and don't, it doesn't have to be a lot of people, but two people. You know, your family is a support. They're, you know, they're, you're all going through this together and have a great understanding but I'm going to use an example, this couple that I recently worked with, you know, dad and mom. And when we started working, they were, I could tell by the way that they looked at each other because their son had um, died by suicide. They didn't want to talk freely because they'd look at each other and they didn't want to hurt the other person. They didn't want to open up all this stuff. But they told me, Later, that it felt so much better having someone like myself in the room with them because they felt safe and knew that I was there for their spouse, that I could be 
supportive for them. And like you were, you were a buffer, you were a buffer and could hold them in that love. So that that's really important. And figuring out what are some of the, I call them treaties because I do have the native American and indigenous, um, on my husband's side of the family. So I take a lot from that, but I think, you know, that's tribes and, and villages really do create a, a safe way of, of healing. So that's a really important piece is, you know, figuring so, out those couple of people. Um, gauge your tribe is E. What about A? Okay, that's accessing your inner healer. And so when you're deep in grief, what happens? You may not eat or you may overeat. You may use... Um, self-medication, whatever, whatever it is for people, you know, it's just a way to kind of insulate and numb that grief and may not get the exercise and all of that. So I have various tools that I encourage people to create their own um, kind of health program. And so it's not like you have to get out and start jogging, but I also am a Spring Force Qigong teacher and Qigong is ancient Chinese um, medicine and wisdom where you can use emotions to help heal yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So I teach um, my clients some movements there to help them in the breathing and just create that calm and peace. It's, it's kind of, uh, yoga, similar, right? Like yoga has some similar ideas of, yeah. of healing. Yeah. Um, not every type of yoga, but there are so different types of uh, physical things we can do to heal the, the emotions and the mind and the emotional body as well. Yeah, Using the yeah. breathing and just using, yeah, working on the mind and the emotional body. And it also helps in the physical body. So that is, um, and I also have my clients, um, I coined the phrase for faith, finding awesome inspiration to heal. And basically what that is, is coming up with a list of things that self-care activities. So it may be just taking a nice bath with lavender and Epsom salts. It may be just opening up the window and just listening to the birds outside, just quieting and breathing and listening to the birds, simple things like that. So that when one of those emotional, the roller coaster is just like at its peak and you feel like you just, what am I going to do? You can look at the list and say, okay, I'm just, I'm going to do this one. And that's been really effective for people is just to say, that's I don't have to idea. think about it. I don't have to think yeah. about it. I can just, I'll pick one off the list. Um, yeah. So, so make a list. All right. Yep. Yep. And then just finding those things to keep yourself healthy. Um, and then the next step is transforming your view. And that's probably one of the most difficult, I would say, is because it's going a little bit deeper. A lot of time when we are grieving and we're hit with a trauma such as what you've gone through, you're bringing with you all of your past experiences, any other griefs that you've had in the past, any traumas that you've had in the past. It's like all of a sudden, this all comes to the table of grief and it's overwhelming. So there may be um, beliefs that you have that you're struggling with right now or anger and guilt, of course, are huge after the loss of a child because as a parent, you know, we want to protect and, and we can't. Sometimes. And I think for those of us who lo- who have lost our children to addiction, that is especially true because in a society we're taught, first of all, that we should be able to somehow control that as parents, right? And we, um, you know, no matter what kind of help we sought for them, no matter how we try, it's such a difficult situation to navigate when a, a child is rebelling and, or, you know, using drugs and 
uh, it's just such a hard thing and parents get blamed a lot. And so I think all those would have, should have, could have, I mean, I do that to this day. I thought the other day, well, maybe if I would have reacted in this way when she did this, instead of the way I reacted, maybe she would still be alive. You know, and I learned a lot along the way in dealing with someone who was using drugs. I learned a lot how to better react, how to better cope. But I mean, I, that is a hard thing, I think, for all of us, you know, who are in the same boat where we've lost our child to overdose. Yep. And, and absolutely, you know, or if your child, you know, has died by suicide, what could I have done to change that? But even for my mom, my brother was only four months old. He was healthy. He was fine. He had his baby shots. And then he died that night. So for 60 years, she carried this guilt, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration at being not being supported, but the guilt was just horrendous. And so then when we started unwrapping that, because she thought that she had done something or that she didn't do something. And, and so we, I walked her through, and that's where sometimes it, it's helpful to have an, a more objective person to just kind of walk through the, your story, because once I walked through it and I reiterated that back to her about what happened from the moment she took him to the doctor to get his shots throughout that whole day and that evening and put it in a factual basis, all of a sudden I said, from my point of view, mom, he had an anaphylactic reaction. He had a bad reaction. Doesn't happen often, but this is what I see. And it just kind of opened her eyes and she could just like her shoulders went down and she breathed and just thought, but she needed to give air to that guilt. She needed to share that out loud because it was eating up. So is that what you advise people do? Find some, maybe a counselor or a trusted friend or somebody to talk to about those feelings of, of guilt or shame or regret? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or coach, you know. I also think, <laughs> I also have come to the realization while I talk to you about how these thoughts pop into my head from time to time. I've come to the realization that I'm not that powerful. Like I cannot control another human being and I can't control circumstances. And I think so often we as mothers, especially, I always say, I've got, uh, you know, I've got a couple other kids doing this thing and that thing. And, you know, some of them are really great things that these kids are doing. Well, do I take a hundred percent credit for that? And then a hundred percent blame for my child who became addicted? Well, no, I'm not really, I mean, sure. I gave them all loving, nurturing environment. They were all raised in basically the same way, but I, I, if I take all the blame for the bad things that happen or a bad choice that a child makes, I take all the credit for the good. I mean, just, I just don't have that much power or that much control. Yep. And I, and I mean, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of when you can look at it from a little bit different perspective is, and having someone kind of re help you reframe that. That's what it is. And reframing it in a way that it's, it's a kind of telling yourself the story and, and, changing up this story in a way that you know that you can live with it, that you can live with the circumstances. A lot of us walk around with faulty thinking. You know, a lot of us walk around with ideas that just aren't true. Uh, and we keep telling those things to ourselves and they seem like they are true, but they aren't always. Right. Um, are we on H? Oh, yep. Honoring your child. Honoring your child. And you do this um, so, I do it. I do it. If you look uh, while we're speaking here, one of Emily's paintings is right behind us. And, oh, um, you know, I, I honor her through her art and through trying to help other people, which actually helps me. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to get yeah. to that because that's kind of the, the last part of it. But honoring your child, it is so important that 
we keep their spirit alive and everything about them and, and talk about them. And a lot of times people get uncomfortable, right? You've probably noticed that. It's like, oh, I don't know if I should talk about Emily. Should I not talk about Emily? And it's like, what? What do you think that you're going to make mom sadder? You're going to make Angela sadder by talking about Emily? Well, you know what? She's always sad. I mean, she's always going to have this heartache. So yes, let's talk and embrace and and celebrate this the beautifulness of the children. And so ceremony is really important. And I do work, um, I've been volunteering at a children's grief camp um, here in Minnesota and Wisconsin um, for several years. And that's one of the things that we do is we have the children come and their families and we kind of split them apart, and, but they get, engage in the same activities. And one of them is this um, ceremony so that they can go home and they can create their own ceremonies. And it's so important. And I just tell people, your ceremony might just be you with a candle or it may be, but figure out those times and how you want to do that and incorporate it into your life. Because the more that you celebrate and honor your child, you're honoring your own grief. I love that. That's That's a beautiful way to put it. And the last step? Okay, embracing change through hope. And so hope is another one of my little acronyms that I came up with years ago. And it just came to me. And it's like honoring our purpose every day. We all come here with a purpose. And sometimes we don't know what that purpose is. And sometimes it does take absolute tragedy for us to realize what that purpose is. But you're a prime example. You have taken something so tragic, so traumatic, but you're creating awareness and you're using your platform and who you are to be able to get out there and help families and help educate. That's what, and so some families, their purpose may be to raise their grandchildren. You know, I have a sister-in-law where my niece died, you know, at a fairly young age. And so there was a granddaughter involved. And so then she brought in and they raised that grandchild until, um, she was adopted by my other niece. But that's a purpose. That's finding that life purpose that when we help others, that's when we heal because we get out of ourselves and we start giving to others. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And I think my purpose uh, came kind of through my daughter's death. I always thought as a journalist, my purpose was to tell stories and my purpose was to help people through storytelling and through awareness and letting people know, you know, what's happening in the world. And I still think those are important things, but I think I found a deeper purpose to help people and to help people understand just reducing the stigma is so important to me because I feel like there, we are all one and there's really no difference between you and I or the, the addict over there in the corner who feels shamed and who feels separate, but really is not. And so that has been something that I, I has sort of reignited my, my passion because after her death, I did feel a lot of, well, just a loss of, uh, just a loss of purpose, a loss of faith, a loss of like, it feels like I was thinking about this, that you just feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you. And what are you supposed to do with nothing, no footing, you know, nothing underneath you. But, but I, I have to say that um, the amount of love from people that I didn't even know that because I shared her story and because I've been working to get rid of the stigma stigma and the shame um, has just been overwhelming and has helped solidify that, yes, I do have this purpose now. And, and I'm still, I still maybe have my other purpose to, to a great extent because that's important too. But this is something that 
I mean, I do podcasts on my own time. I write blogs on my own time. You know, I run a charity on the side. So obviously, I mean, I could be doing a lot of other things, but it does just knowing one person was helped and maybe one family doesn't have to go through the same thing that my family has gone through is incredibly healing to me. It, it's it almost seems selfish. Do you know what I mean? Like I, people say, oh, you're so selfless. And I said, no, no, I am selfish because just knowing that my daughter's death makes a difference somehow. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't just for nothing uh, yeah. is something that helps me go on, you know, every day of my life. And, and, and I'm going to go back to it's so important. We are social creatures. We are here to help one another. It's not all about self-serving interests. And so once we can open up and start sharing and helping like what you're doing so beautifully is that is a healing that's a healing process. You know, I, I've known too many people who are friends and family members where they they never found that purpose and, and um, numbed it in so many different ways. And their lives ended with, with that tragedy, um, you know, and it was just like replicated tragedy because their child died and then they ended up not being able to move forward. And all of the my book was really written by all these women such as yourself. I just take myself as I'm the scribe. You're the journalist. I'm the scribe. They shared all of their, what they're doing, what works, what doesn't. And then working with all of my coaching clients and working intimately with my mother is where I saw what are some of the things that are really helpful and that help people to move on with their lives and find that peace, find that purpose and I've also seen where it didn't work so well. So that's what I did is I'm the scribe. I've taken all the wisdom of all of you who are walking this path and putting it into a way that maybe there's some helpful tools. And I know that it works well for lots of people because they're ready for it. But if you're not ready to do that movement, that's okay too. I mean, that's where it's being kind to yourself. and But you're helping others and... It's not self-centered at all or self, you know, it's, it's, it's necessary for your healing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of healing in that. If there's something you could, a few thoughts you could leave grieving parents with today, you know, I think that the desperation, the hopelessness, the um, depression, all of that. I mean, we all experience that at different times. Um, Hopefully we don't stay there. We don't stay stuck in that. And that's what you're, I think your steps are very good at outlining how not to stay stuck. But if you just could offer some advice for someone who's struggling. The number one advice I offer everyone is please be kind to yourself. The kindness needs to be to yourself and to not feel like you have to live within others' expectations. Because as I said, and as you know, There is no timetable. There is no cookie cutter process. Seven steps is not a cookie cutter process. We all go through all of these feelings, emotions, and journeys at a different path, at a different time frame. So I say be kind to yourself. So whenever you're feeling a little out of sorts or you're feeling like maybe people are judging or you shoulda, coulda, woulda, it's like take and breathe. And that's the other thing that's the first thing that I teach people is you have to learn to breathe. So remember when our parents probably said our grandparents say count to 10 before you react. 
breathing in the midst of such emotional, the, the emotional tsunamis is just to say, take three to five, just really good, deep, gentle breaths. And I guarantee you, because there's a physiological change that goes on in your body, you can finally start getting everything settling down. It also brings us back into the moment when we breathe, brings us into the now, which is very hard for those of us who are grieving to be, it's, it's very hard just for us to get there because we spent so much time in the past with what we should have, could have, would have done differently or thinking about the person we missed in the memories, or we spend a lot of time in the future thinking about, oh, I'm missing out on this. Like, for example, you know, my, I'll never have a wedding that my daughter or grandchildren, you know, from that daughter. And that's a another huge loss. But when we get stuck in those two places and we're not right here now present, um, that's, I think, when, when we really get overwhelmed with the emotions, yes. it's, it's those thoughts that trigger that. So I do agree, um, just being able to stop and breathe and say, okay, I'm all right now in this, in this moment. And then the next 10 seconds or whatever it might be, but not to get out there too far. Right. Um, I think that's what our breath does for us is really bring Absol us back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, and it's simple. It's a simple technique, but it's a habit that needs to be, be learned because we forget, we forget to breathe. And in the ancient, we're not taught, we're, we're, we're never not taught, taught that as children. And no. the other thing, just, I'm going to bring this in real quick is, as I said, I'm a Qigong teacher and have been pretty steeped in the Qigong culture, which is ancient Chinese medicine. And the emotion of grief settles in our lungs. And so we can have lung issues. And so people who, you know, have experienced the trauma and this deep grief, a lot of times may have lung issues, may end up with breast cancer in that area, so that upper chest area. So our breathing energy system can get blocked. The energy can get blocked. So just by being able to breathe and taking that time to breathe in and out actually physiologically heals us too and it allows that blockages to be removed. And I'm going to put some links um, on this podcast for people so they can learn more about that practice well, thank you so much for joining me. We're going to let people know how to get your book and also some resources that you have in the book. We'll put some links for people as well. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much. I just really appreciate your time. And again, um, I am surrounding you with love and comfort. Every oh, time I, love I meet that. Any, any family, especially any mama, you go right into my heart. And this is where I hold you all is... That's why I'm here is to hold that and hold all of you. We need more people like you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. For resources for families and how to get help, just go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider giving us a positive review. Thank you.